You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast in which we discuss the big policy issues affecting us as Australians. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I am sitting on the land of the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Today, our guest is Professor Ian Hickey, an internationally renowned researcher in clinical psychiatry. Professor Hickey was an inaugural commissioner on Australia's National Mental Health Commission and has been at the forefront of the move to have mental health and suicide prevention uh, elevated in the Australian conversation and debate and is a key architect in the creation of Headspace. Ian, welcome. Hi, Zoe. Describe to me the state of mental health in Australia at the moment and just how well or badly the system is going at supporting it. It's important to say that prior to COVID, the mental health system in Australia was subject to endless reviews, revisions, and I must say I participated in many myself, human rights commissions, productivity commissions, state royal commissions, Senate inquiries, and and just about an inquiry in every single state. In other words, it was a system under real pressure in which we had never really brought together the essential components to cover the needs of the population. And then along came COVID. So in the last two years, that system, like the aged care system, has really struggled. And as COVID has played out differently for different parts of the population, particularly for young people, particularly for those without the socioeconomic means to buy better care, and with pressure on public hospitals as as resources have been diverted to deal with the physical health consequences of COVID, that system has essentially stalled. It's unable to meet the demand. It's unable to respond in a timely fashion and the pressure on emergency departments, particularly through the presentations of young people, has markedly escalated. So let's break that down a bit. And perhaps I could put forward the argument that obviously none of that is a good thing, but in many ways exposing that perhaps is potentially a good thing because it might enable some action to be taken. But where are the cracks? Where are the the obvious holes? As a friend of mine says, there are more cracks than floorboards. There are actually more holes in the system than there are essential supports. So what's happened is essentially over over many decades, and I must say we have had a national mental health policy, a strategy for 30 years. 2022 is the 30th anniversary of governments agreeing to fix this system. And that, that problem arises essentially because state governments take care of emergency departments, public hospitals, forensic care, the really hard end of the spectrum, about 2% of the population. The the Commonwealth historically has supported general practice, family care, primary care, Medicare, and the pharmaceutical benefit system, but that reaches only essentially about 5% of the population and those with less needs, those who go and see their GP or family doctor, but not require much more. Since about 2006, that's extended to cover some degree of psychology care through Medicare as well. What that means is that about five to 10% of Australians every year that need mental health care actually find themselves in a situation where they can't access the care they need, where they require more specialist care, they require coordinated care, they require the value of multidisciplinary teams to come together and actually provide care. Think eating disorders, think alcohol and drug problems, think complex mood problems, think problems that have emerged over a long period of time, think young people attempting suicide and going to emergency departments or involved in self-harm, where there's really a need for more serious care 
and for that to occur fairly quickly. That part of the care system has become less affordable, less accessible and more necessary during the COVID period. So you spoke of reviews and this sort of resonates with me because it seems that I'm talking to a lot of people about a lot of issues and we talk about a lot of reviews that have been done in various sectors. Aged care is another where there have been multiple reviews, all of which have come to essentially the same conclusion but haven't been acted on. Why is that happening, do you think? In mental health, we are the most reviewed sector. In aged care, when uh, Mark Butler, the previous Labor minister, was a cabinet minister, they had a productivity commission review, they had a major set of issues, and uh, he was responsible for mental health and aged care. If you, if you speak to him or anyone who's been in this position, they'll say, look, aged care is a lot of money, structural reorganisation, mental health really hard, because unless you have cooperation, not only in the health sector, but across education, across welfare and a number of areas, you won't make progress. But also I think governments have had the view that this problem isn't tractable, that it can't be fixed, and it's just not worth the investment. So in our areas, a lot of discussion about money on the one hand, but I don't personally think money is the issue. I think actual serious agreement, serious accountability for fixing the problem and then fixing it regionally, fixing it where you live. So I'm associated with a particular slogan about right care, first time, where you live. There's about 50 functional regions in Australia and you need to fix it there. And that's, a, that's an issue of cooperation between federal and state governments, the non-government sector and others. But it's really one of accountability. It's really one that governments don't want to be accountable for the outcome, a lack of commitment to solving it. And most of the responsibility for that, frankly, lies at the federal level. Without federal commitment working with the non-government sector, which has really grown since John Howard, really bankrolled that sector, without working with state governments who are committed, without working with other the health professionals, you're not gonna fix the problem. And without significant innovation, we live in the 21st century, the use of technology in mental health is particularly important. I'm personally associated with, with efforts in that area to develop new technologies and new ways of connecting. We have real opportunities to fix the problem, what we don't have is local accountability, people wanting to put it right in the areas in which they live. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about the multi-level cooperation. Uh, we've got the information from all the reviews that, that there's no forward movement. I still don't really get it, though, if what you're saying is right, that it's not really a cost issue, it's it's an organisational issue. What's the roadblock? Is it just that... it? It's such a big problem that it, it, there's paralysis. Why can't we get some movement? There is real need for structural reform. In fact, during the Turnbull government period, when I was on the National Mental Health Commission, one of the key recommendations we made was to adopt regionality, to work with the Commonwealth instruments called primary health networks. That they had to work in partnership with state government funded local health districts or local health networks in Victoria. That's a structural issue between governments. Nobody wants to actually solve that problem. And that's exactly the same five years later. The Productivity Commission came along and recommended to this federal government two years ago, that's exactly what they needed to do, to actually create the mechanisms at that local level, either through common purchasing or at least through common agreements that they'd plan together, they'd fund together, and they'd deliver together. And here's the hard bit, they'd be accountable together for the outcome. And we have danced around that topic endlessly to actually do that particular thing. So there's been a lot of announcements just recently that, that the Commonwealth have reached agreement with some states, but not others, about more money, certainly not with Victoria and WA about more money, but the issue of actually the structure so that the population's actually covered. I think when you say why it hasn't happened, Zoe, it is a major structural reform. We never built a mental health system, like we haven't built an aged care system that's relevant to the aging population. We've never built a mental health system to cover the mental health needs of Australians. 
across the board. So we have a very limited hospital-based system and one that's just under increasing pressure through emergency departments because of that failure. And that's, you know, this is the hard business of government. I must say, Julia Gillard, to her credit, set forward a 10-year strategy when she was the Prime Minister, saying we need to look at this as one of continuous improvement, but it would take at least 10 years. Well, that lasted about two years before she lost her job, and that process actually came to a you know, standstill yet again. So I think in the short-term governments we have in Australia, particularly this is a federal government issue, it needs to step up. The problem with the federal government also says, look, we don't really provide the services, we just provide the money. If you don't mind me saying so, we don't hold the hose. You know, we don't actually take responsibility for it. It's up to the states, it's up to the other sectors. This is a nonsense because, in fact, the Commonwealth does fund Medicare, it funds pharmaceutical benefits, it ranges services, it funds directly or services like Headspace. And, in fact, it's the one, of course, with the financial means to actually bring the parties together. And it has its own mechanism called primary health networks. In fact, when Prime Minister Turnbull took this forward and those networks were established, about half the money was for mental health and drug and alcohol services. You know, so if they wanted to go hard on solving the issue, but then they would become accountable. Guess what? If it didn't work, those people would say, okay, you know, you're in a role. Now, of course, the Commonwealth is extremely reluctant to do that. It just wants to say we're the hands-off funder, we're not the provider. But in fact, what it does with its money really determines what happens to most of the population. Right. So I want to get sort of along the track of this conversation, but but when it comes to this structural issue, you know, if, if I'm a policymaker and I want to say, okay, what's the first step to get this moving, in a nuts and bolts sense, what's the start, do you think? Well, we've demonstrated this on the north coast of New South Wales. You get people in the same room. You get the leadership of the primary health network and the leadership of the local health districts, which are state-funded, in the same room to use the same planning instrument. Who lives here? What's their needs? What's their socioeconomic status? What's their educational status? How will they respond? What's a, what string of services, what supply chain of services will be required? Then who will provide them? If we don't have them, as is often the case in the country areas, how will we purchase them? How will we buy them in? From whom? Now to do that, you actually need the permission. So permission has to come from Canberra and permission has to come in New South Wales from Macquarie Street in Sydney for that to actually happen. That's where the problem really hits the barriers. They have to agree to let their local officials work together for the needs of that population to plan together, to purchase services together, to arrange who does what so they don't trip over each other, so it's actually coordinated, so that people move between emergency departments, for example, and follow up or get more specialist services or purchase more telehealth services, new digital services. How do you do that? That's where the, that's where the sticking actually happens. That's where it gets stuck and then nothing happens. They go, no, no, you can't do that. Permission does not come from Canberra or from Sydney to actually proceed in that way to plan services regionally. But you can do that. We've done that in planning in North Coast New South Wales. There's a North Coast Collective, which is actually on that particular process. But its progress is slowed down by the fundamental lack of agreement at the Commonwealth and state level to permit local services to grow and meet the needs of their own populations. It doesn't matter whether you're in eastern Melbourne or you're in southwestern Sydney or you're in far north Queensland, the same principle actually applies. There are population needs, there are groups of problems to be dealt with, there are workforces to be recruited, there's services to be arranged and coordinated. Because the other thing about mental health is it's not having your appendix removed, it's not a short course of antibiotics. It usually takes some particular period of time to get real not only reduction in symptoms, but it really importantly, improvement in function, get back to work, get back to school. And that's where the big economic payoff in mental health is, earlier intervention, plus seeing people through to full functional recovery. 
From a, a philosophical perspective, do you think that this is partly to do with a, a lack of acceptance of mental health as a health issue, that, that it's put in a different basket to physical health by those who are leading us or in control of the system? So there's two aspects that fundamentally, yes, is that there's a belief sitting behind that this is one of those things, a bit like poverty or a bit like domestic violence, just too hard to actually do anything about, too much in people's private life and their personal life and too sociological that it's not the same as a virus rampant in the community or it's not the same as having a service for children's cancer or not the same as having the service for breast cancer, for example, where the community demands that we have high-level services that are available to everybody, independent of your capacity to pay. So we've had two problems, a bit like uh, dental health, where in the, you know, leave it up to you to pay for yourself a lot. So there's been a lot of out-of-pocket expenses which have actually grown under the current government. And then there's been this, but it's really hard to fix anyway. Is it really worth the investment? Now, a lot of the other issues I'm tied up with, and again, uh, when Malcolm Turner was Prime Minister, we had a lot of discussion about the mental wealth of the country, which is if you invest in this area, particularly in children and young people, there's a huge economic payoff. If you fail to invest, there's a huge economic cost. It's an issue that should be of concern to any treasurer and any prime minister and any finance minister in these days. This is one of those areas where failure to invest costs the nation, but actually investing actually has the potential to deliver you know, really significant benefits. So I think that's been an issue, is an attitudinal one. And this issue that physical health is a priority. We saw during the COVID period, Greg Hunt, the health minister, say he would use the entire national capacity in health, private and public, to meet the needs of the population. You know, buying beds in private hospitals, buying services in private intensive cares, manning ventilators, in a flash, the conversion to telehealth in 10 days, he made the comment, more was done in 10 days than the previous 10 years. And I'd agree, that just meant nothing had happened for the previous 10 years. You know, it was, a, it was actually a reflection on the inaction of government. I think your other point is one of conservatism, which is true. People are kind of accept the current level of dysfunction as normative, as normal. There's not much else to be done. So why mess with it too much? And I think that's really been an issue. Longer term structural issues, just, and you've seen this with aged care, you've seen this in other areas, just too hard. Too many vested interests in keeping things the same way. This kind of idea, and we see this at the state level too. Oh, we don't really want to change the system that much. We'll just try and improve it at the edges. And that's really what's going on again, is a lot of you know, window dressing at the edges, more commitment in terms of money, in fact, the money thing is the greatest smokescreen of the lot, that we spend about 7.5% of total health spending on mental health. That hasn't changed since the 1990s. So every time you see $10 million of this and $5 million of that, it barely keeps pace, or it doesn't keep pace actually, with inflation or the cost of workforces. And the proportion of money we spend on mental health does not change. As I say, but we could, we could easily put a lot more money into the current dysfunctional system and waste a lot of money. So. You know, I'm one of those people that thinks, yes, there's a lot more money to be spent, but let's spend it differently. Let's spend it on children. Let's spend it on young people. Let's spend it on the supporting structures. I must say some of those supporting structures are in childcare and education and start to life. And then they are in particularly, the, as you've seen in Victoria, the, the world the world leading work led by Pat McGorry, our previous Australian of the Year, on early intervention in young people and then support people to full functional recovery. You know, these are the sort of things that make a huge difference. There's investments in technology now and for those living outside of our major cities, and for many of those people who can't afford to see a specialist, use of technology is a really smart way of improving care, as well as promoting better aspects of self-care. So there are a lot of things that are really different. So the conservatism is a real problem, but also underneath that is, is an attitudinal issue where mental health is still seen as 
basically your own responsibility, that of you and your family, and in some way perhaps your own failing has contributed to this. And you should dig yourself out of your own hole rather than actually support those in great need. Yeah, I mean, I sort of have a sense as well that it, it, because it's not so easily defined as a, a physical health condition, you know, if you've got a, a cut leg that needs stitching, that's fairly self-evident what the solution is. But that it's much more difficult to pin down uh, something that is affecting someone mentally or, or emotionally. So therefore, that becomes too difficult to grasp because the KPIs are sort of so obvious um, for those who are, are delivering the service from a position of leadership, if you know what I mean. This has certainly been true politically, I think. But if you're in a family that's living with a young girl with anorexia nervosa or severe eating disorder, or you're living with a young man with a major drug and alcohol problem, or you're living with a dad with a major mood disorder, it's pretty obvious to you. If you're living with someone who's not going to work as a consequence of their mental health problem, or someone who's actually attempted suicide or is self-harming in an emergency department, it's pretty obvious that it's a major problem. So this kind of can't see it issue is really the rest of us walking away from that. And I must say in the health professions, this was true in the past as well. But we've been seeing a change, and I must say that, for example, the Australian College of Emergency Medicine, the people who run emergency departments, people like Simon Judkins, the previous president, they have been at the forefront of saying this is the most serious health problem that we face that is not being properly dealt with by the system. So I think we've seen a real change in the professions, a change in the health arena. What we haven't seen is a change in the politics of the area, significantly beyond the announcements. So we are one of the great areas of announceables. You will have seen more press releases and announceables in mental health and during COVID continuously from the Prime Minister down, more helplines, you know, more announcements, more community campaigns, more telling you to take care of yourself, interestingly, rather than taking care of each other, more take care of yourself during the COVID period. As distinct from actually, here's the health system reform, here's the real issues. In fact, the Commonwealth's been working on a so-called national agreement for the last two years, and it says it's been agreed, except it doesn't include all the states. It's an un unusual kind of national agreement that isn't one. You know, so I think that just gives you an idea of the level of dysfunction that sits under this politically. And I, I think it is essentially a political crisis rather than a social crisis. Australia is actually one of the most mentally aware nations on earth, us and New Zealand compete for first prize in this, that we are very mentally aware. We're very fortunate that attitudes have shifted a lot in this country and the media and national campaigns have played a big role in that. But the underlying structural issues in the health system have not. 30 years, 30 years of national strategies and we're talking about starting again on a national agreement. Really that just tells you 30 years of failure, in fact, of national accountability at a political level. What does it say too about the sort of attitude from government to social infrastructure versus physical infrastructure? This is something that we've talked about in various contexts on this podcast, just how spending is prioritised and what governments expect to, to get back from it. You know, building roads and bridges, for example, gives you a tangible asset that you can point to and say, see, we did that. Uh, and that enables you to get from A to B. But it's, it, it seems to be difficult for government to grasp when it comes to this kind of social infrastructure, doesn't it? The whole economic debate from GDP down, from the Reserve Bank down, is about physical infrastructure, it's about the economy, it's about the economy, about the unemployment rate, you know, as if that's the only thing. And of course, if unemployment goes up, you build bridges, you build airports, you build railways, you put money into construction, 
you know, every time we talk about jobs, you see blokes in high visi outfits and hard hats, you know, doing something in construction or factories or mining or manufacturing. In fact, it's been pointed out on many occasions, there are many more high, power, uh, high paid and, and much more important jobs, I would argue, in the healthcare industries, in childcare and aged care that are just never attended to. So I think your point's an essential one, that actually the economic benefit, the mental wealth associated with those other areas is huge. And just look what happened during COVID when we started to run out of nurses, when we ran out of aged care workers, when we ran out of actually having to use schools as basically childcare. I think everybody else understands the social infrastructure is critical, but for some reason, governments and business have historically separated the two things out as different, as separate. So I think that's also one of the really big changes we now need to see. So the work I'm associated with in, in measuring the mental wealth of the country absolutely factors in the cost of caring. Again, the cost of what the neglect, if you don't do it, what it costs you and who pays. But if you do do it, what is the social return on that? And the jobs of the future and much of the economic future depends on actually having people who are skilled in those areas, skilled in healthcare, skilled in childcare, skilled in aged care. Uh, not, and I think increasingly, the public won't tolerate the neglect of those areas. We've seen this in the Royal Commissions again in the aged care area and other areas, the same thing. So in some ways we need to reconcile the economic discourse. And I must say great credit to people like Sam Mostyn and others who've led this through the Chief Executives of Women. And, and, and I say this because Sam herself was a National Mental Health Commissioner. So I'm quite close with her on these kind of issues. These are issues that are economically smart, but they're also socially essential. And mental health is an excellent example. We need the workforces in this area to be skilled. Now, if we invested in them, which the current governments won't, through Commonwealth supported places in the university sector, through training and skills in these areas, we would have more skilled workers. And guess what? They would earn more money. I don't know if you've ever been looked after by an Irish nurse or a Filipino nurse or anyone else. Countries who actually export healthcare workers to high paid jobs around the world. They're in global demand. And of course, one of the reasons we are now terribly short of these in Australia is that we've, we've relied on migrant labour in a lot of these areas but relied a lot on migrant low-skilled labour. What is required is migrant high-skilled labour in many of these areas, and these jobs will cost more in the future and they'll pay more. So, you know, it's one of the areas where from a workforce point of view, we should be investing in those areas. But of course, in a crisis, it's not the same as an airport, a railway station, a car park, at a you know, commuter car park, or in all the other things we'll see problems. Interestingly, in some of the uh, marginal electorates and regional electorates in which I spend a lot of my time, people talk about they don't want another car park they want a youth mental health service. They don't want another railway extension. They actually want an aged care service that works. And they want a mental health service that's actually real. So I think the human services side on the ground, interestingly, way back to John Howard, who rang focus groups in this area, if you ask people in health what they really worried about, they said two things, mental health and aged care. And guess what, 20 years later, come along COVID, the two bits of the health system that really can't cope, mental health and aged care. The rest of the health system, did a pretty fine job in the face of a COVID pandemic of organising itself to respond. But mental health and aged care really struggled because they were neglected. And I think, I'd say on the mental health point, things like childcare, child, early childhood education, surrounding education care, absolutely matter. And of course, for the, as you age, in the mental health area, good quality aged care also matters. So the, you know, these are areas that have fundamentally been neglected by governments as we chase the big E of the economy and the big GDP and tend to neglect actually what the economy is for, which mm. is serving our human and social needs. Yeah, and it's so interesting how you interconnect all of those 
um, care pieces of the economy and how all of those things connect to mental health. And we have interviewed Sam Mostyn on this podcast. I'd encourage you to take a listen to it if you haven't already. And we do talk quite a lot about revaluing the care economy, which is something that I'm really interested in as well. Ian, just before I let you go, I just want to bring you back to how all of this is affecting people who need support. So while government debates this and you and I are having this conversation and endless reviews are done, what are the physical impacts on people in a a logistical sense and access sense and therefore the further impact on their mental health from the, the system as it is? So because the system is under such pressure, and that COVID has made the situation remarkably worse, particularly for women, for those with lower assets, for those in casual work and for young people. The presentations to emergency department have gone up. Emergency department's presentations in New South Wales about 45% in young people. Reports in Victoria suggest in the area of 60 to 70%. So they're under pressure. When they can't connect with care, they get sent back with their families, they're not taken care of. About 40% of presentations to emergency departments are re-presentations, people who meant more than once didn't get care and had to come back again. Imagine a middle-aged man like myself with chest pain having to wait till the third or fourth time through an emergency department to get decent care. We just wouldn't accept it. And it would know that, it would put my life at risk. I'd be very upset if I'd gone with an acute heart problem and had to wait three or four different times to get care. There are lots of people then who've got complex problems that have been recognised during the COVID period. Young women living at home with their parents with eating disorders, others with drug and alcohol problems. Those where the mental health problems have been exacerbated by the breakdown in social connection, jobs, work, lives during the COVID period. They can't get into care. So the demand has surged. That's meant that actually, it's, and the supplies stayed the same. People are seeing actually it's even harder to get care. The cost of care has gone up. So the out-of-pocket costs have risen dramatically. Stephen Duckett and his colleagues at the Grattan Institute recently commented on the out-of-pocket costs to see medical specialists. Psychiatrists and clinical psychologists are right at the top of that. Getting to see more specialised care has become more expensive. Hundreds of dollars out-of-pocket to get assessments, just to get assessments, let alone to get any ongoing care, hundreds of dollars of -of out-of-pocket for each time you need to go. So the impact of that has been that care has become less accessible, more expensive, and more restricted to those who are already in the system or who have the capacity to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket to get additional care. Now that is not anything close to a Medicare system. That is not anything close to what Australians assume to be the case. And you can't get a lot of that care at your local public hospital. I mean, if you have some other forms of cancer or you have some other forms of heart disease, you're in an accident, then Australia has a great public hospital system for physical health. But many of the issues in mental health are not taken care of. You won't get treatment for your eating disorder. You won't get treatment for your drug and alcohol problem. You won't get treatment for your major depression or your mood disorder or through your local public hospital. It doesn't have the services. So I'm associated with a movement about establishing waiting lists in mental health, because at least you have to know what the problem is to establish a waiting list to then fix, like we do for hip surgery or eye surgery or other forms of care that are required. You have to assess the problem and then know how long people are waiting. And then of course, governments have to respond to that. So one of the tricks that we've used in mental health is not to have waiting lists for many of these things, is to pretend the problem isn't there and tell you to go away. So the threshold for care has got even higher. So the impact has been really 
dramatic. And many, many people who in the past would have accessed care are now struggling to access care. So you talk to any parent, you talk to of a teenager, you talk to any young person, you talk to any middle-aged person who's tried to get care in recent times. You talk to any general practitioner who's tried to refer anyone to specialist care in recent times. You'll find that they are exasperated with the situation. And they know that they're dealing with people who have really serious needs. These are not trivial. They're not masked anymore. They've been revealed. They're out there. The person's seeking care, but we don't have a care system response. There's been a huge amount of government advertising, something I'm a bit cynical about, telling you to go to care with the assumption that the care is there. As distinct from, actually, when you present for care, you'll have great trouble and it'll cost you a lot of money and you'll be lucky if you find it. And then there'll be huge variations in the quality of that care. Not all is everybody the same. I mean, general counselling or even just spending time with your friends and family is not the same as being able to access a specialist clinical psychologist or child psychiatrist or psychiatrist in another setting where you need specialist care. And I think Australians get that. They get that for every other health problem. You know, there's certain things where you see your family doctor, there's certain things where your family and friends can help, but there are other things where, frankly, you need access to the specialist care to get on the right pathway to find out what the problem is and to know what your options are for best care. Professor Ian Hickey, who is a leading voice on mental health in Australia. Ian, thanks for your insights and thanks for joining us on Find Your Voice. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Zoe. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria.